We make decisions every day, but these days those decisions, big and small, can feel paralyzing. Welcome to Deciding Factors, a new podcast from GLG. I'm your host, Eric Jaffe. Each week, I'll talk to a world-class expert who has faced incredibly tough decisions and can offer unique insights to help you navigate the decisions you face. Since late March, school closures have kept more than 1.5 billion primary and secondary students home. In many places, schools pivoted to remote learning, which continued the academic year, but put an inordinate burden on parents who either had to manage their children while working from home, or if they had to leave the house for work, had to worry about childcare. And while countries in Asia and Europe have managed to contain COVID-19 and have now cautiously reopened their schools, the United States has not succeeded in suppressing the infection in the same way. Though the president has expressed his desire for schools to reopen, when and how this happens is up to individual states and localities. Whether this means a full reopening, a mix of online and in-person classes, or a fully remote school year has yet to be seen. What we do know is that no matter what happens, the next school year is not going to look like any that came before it. That's why I'm eager to talk to my guest today, who can help us understand how the pandemic has impacted schools, students, and teachers, and what reopening looks like as the COVID-19 pandemic continues to surge. In addition to being a parent herself, Dr. Lena Wen is an emergency physician and public health professor at George Washington University, and previously served as Baltimore's health commissioner. I sat down with Dr. Wen on Friday, July 24th, shortly after the CDC appeared to revise its guidance on reopening schools, which was a topic that we covered. Dr. Wen, welcome to Deciding Factors. So great to have you with us today. Thank you very much. Glad to be with you. So maybe we could just start by talking about the reopenings of schools. You've written widely on this topic. Can you just tell us what your view has been on the reopening of schools? When I was the health commissioner of Baltimore, I oversaw public schools in the city. And also, I'm a parent of two young children. I really agree with the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendation that children belong in schools and that we should be doing everything we can to get our children back into schools. But we can't do that at all costs. We cannot get our children safely in schools if there is raging, explosive spread of COVID-19 in our schools. I mean, everybody wants to know, can our schools be free of COVID? You cannot have schools free of COVID if the community is a hotbed of infection. You just cannot open safely in areas that are undergoing rapid surge. If you have a community where one in a hundred people have coronavirus and you have a school of a thousand, on day one, you're going to walk in with 10 people who are actively infecting others. That just does not make sense. And in particular, we don't have enough testing. Imagine if a child gets ill and we now need to test the entire class and the teachers and isolate them and their families. What happens if we don't have tests and we have to wait two weeks for these test results to come back? I mean, the idea of opening schools in an unsafe setting, it's going to compromise children's health. It also will compromise the health of staff and teachers and their families. You have talked about different scenarios for opening schools. There's a state-by-state approach. There's a national approach. Can you talk about today? What is the approach that you would recommend to officials on reopening? 
Absolutely. So I would recommend two different tracks depending on how the state is doing when it comes to their infection. So there are some states and uh, some regions, certainly many regions within other states that are actually doing well, where the community transmission is contained, where the test positivity rate is under 5%, where the tests are coming back within 48 hours, where there is a sustained downward trend in the number of infections. I mean, there are places across our country that meet these guidelines. In which case, these places should focus on surveillance, making sure that they maintain that level of um, of relative low virus in their community, and they need to be implementing the CDC guidelines. They can safely reopen in person if they implement these guidelines. By the way, these guidelines are expensive. If you look at the types of things that are recommended, they are things like spacing out desks and cutting down the number of students in classes, cohorting the students and having them basically in their own pods. They're not infecting people and, and, and teachers are not infecting others. They may include changing bus routes and staggering schedules and buying PPE and setting up isolation rooms. I mean, they all cost money, but we have spent a lot of money bailing out the airline industry and bailing out cruise ship industry and banks and other things. Why not also spend that money on schools? And so those areas where there is controlled community transmission can implement these guidelines and protect students. Then on the other hand, you've got places that are not doing well. Yes, they should still be putting into place plans for when they can get the infection under control. They need to be considering a full shutdown. So if there is any chance of having our schools reopen in the fall, they need to be implementing these types of community-wide mitigation measures now. The CDC has issued some new guidance about school reopening. Can you update us on that guidance and give us your kind of immediate reaction to it? A few weeks ago, um, when the CDC first put out their guidance on school reopening, there were comments that were made by President Trump and Vice President Pence about how these guidelines are apparently too challenging. And they said that these guidelines, paraphrasing here, but that these guidelines should be changed because otherwise schools are not going to be able to meet these guidelines and would not be able to reopen. Well, I mean, I think a lot of us public health experts did a double take to that, saying the guidelines are not the problem. I mean, the guidelines are based on evidence and science. And so if a school is unable to meet these guidelines, the school shouldn't open. You don't go around changing the guideline. You change with the work. You do the work in order to meet these guidelines. As of the time that we're speaking, there was just a press conference done by the CDC where it appears that they have actually buckled to political pressure and changed their guidelines. I know that many of our children depend on our schools for healthcare. This is where they come to get their asthma treated. This is where they come to get their glasses and other basic healthcare tended to. Kids go to school also to get their nutritional supply. 80% of the students that I served in Baltimore dependent on schools for free or reduced lunches. One in four cases of child abuse and neglect are detected through um, school teachers and counselors. I mean, there are many reasons for kids to be in school. But that said, it really is concerning when the guidelines from the CDC do not lead with the science. There are real economic reasons, health reasons, educational reasons for our kids to be back. But I think that also needs to be weighed against the cost of going back to. You know, we know from the research that children tend to not get severely ill as adults do from COVID-19. That's not to say that kids never get ill. 
Also, children do not exist in a bubble. They're going to come home and potentially infect their parents and、um, and their grandparents and others around them and change the dynamics of the infection in their community. There was a, a study done、um, just in the last week or so from South Korea that did contact tracing to look at how likely it is that children will transmit to others, and they found that children older than the age of ten will transmit the virus just as much as adults do. That children under the age of ten transmit it less, about half as much as adults do. But half of a lot is a lot. We have to think about the impact on teachers and staff. I've heard of some solutions where students can return to school, be socially distanced, and maybe supervised by a non-teacher, and then receive instruction over computers, laptops from their instructor who is remote. Is that a solution that could balance a lot of these variables? Is that super expensive? And and are there other creative solutions that we should be considering? We have seen examples of school districts around the country and parents coming up with creative solutions. There is a lot of debate about this too, but that parents have put together their own kind of pandemic pods. Families that want to reduce their risk as much as possible for those kids to get together in various people's homes while they do virtual learning together. So I think that all of these are possible. There are hybrid models that are also being put out in different parts of the country, where instead of going to school every day in order to reduce class sizes, that children are in school two or three days a week. There are other examples as well, again, of prioritizing certain children who need the in-person instruction the most. And so I think that all of these need to be tried. I wanted to talk about working parents, and in particular, working mothers. So many parents are having to drop out of the workforce in order to take care of their children or other loved ones. Is there anything from a policy perspective we can be doing, either at the state, local, or national level, to help beyond the legislation and stimulus that we've passed? It's a great question. I mean, we need to be doing everything we can to keep people whole during this time. To the point of schools, we need to be doing a lot more when it comes to supporting our schools financially. Funding cannot be held as a threat, but rather as this is the obligation that our federal government has to provide for our our students. And what about teachers? What can we do to protect teachers and to keep them safe throughout this process? We now know of so many teachers who are taking early retirement. Who are going to quit their jobs? We should not be asking them to put their lives in danger to do their job. And so this is why that hybrid option is going to be so important because there are going to be teachers and students who cannot do in-person instruction. So having the virtual option for for them will, will be critical. Can you talk through the impact that this is having on students who are from lower income communities, and what, if anything, we are doing or can do to help those communities? We already know that COVID nineteen disproportionately impacts people of color. These are the same communities that face many educational disparities too, and where the children will benefit the most from going back to school and not experiencing further of what's called this COVID slide. And so, I, I think it's really critical that we continue to understand the nuances here. Yes, these students would benefit the most from in-person instruction, but we cannot send them. Into school only to have them be infected and come back and affect their families that are already the most vulnerable too. I think there are specific things that we could do. For example, if we know that there's a big digital divide, we can be ensuring that we provide laptops and iPads and whatever it is that kids need in these communities that may not have them. The schools 
are already under-resourced. You know, we have a situation in our country where public schools are funded through property taxes. And so the same schools in communities that already suffer disproportionately from COVID are also the ones that are under-resourced and need additional resources because they exist in very cramped conditions already. There is already poor air conditioning and airflow that don't have adequate cleaning supplies, much less all the other things that are needed to upgrade the schools. And so I think that just as with everything else, the distribution of resources should be proportional to need. And we need to be doing so much more to assist our children and give them options, no matter who they are and what income level their family happens to be. You mentioned countries when we you know, first started chatting that have been doing well in COVID prevention and, and also having more success with school openings. Is there a, a couple that you could walk through specifically what they've done that you think could be models for us? So many countries in the European Union and South Korea and Singapore and Australia, New Zealand, I mean, we're talking just so many have done the right thing when it comes to crushing the curve. There was an example out of Germany that I think is very interesting. There were schools that reopened. They had enough tests there to have kids and teachers test themselves at home every four days. And only if they have a negative test can they go back to school. Imagine if we have that here. That would make me as a parent much more likely to send my kids back to school. Testing is not foolproof. There's going to be a false negative, false positive. You are going to have an, uh, some inaccuracies. But right now, we have nothing. We have temperature screening, which is really not very helpful because fever is a very late symptom. We have symptom checking, which may be helpful, but certainly is not foolproof because of asymptomatic transmission that up to 40% or even more of cases could be from asymptomatic transmission. Imagine if we could be testing everyone before they entered school, before they entered university or a dorm on campus, before they went back to work. I think that that would provide so much reassurance. So often we hear this dichotomy of pitting public health versus the economy when actually public health is the roadmap back to economic function. Have we discerned a difference in the way that different age students transmit the virus? Is it possible, for example, we could have high schools closed, but elementary schools open or vice versa? I had mentioned the South Korea study earlier, and I'll mention it now. Again, that it appears that children over the age of 10 will transmit COVID as much as adults do. Under the age of 10 um, will transmit it less. But that said, even if they are half as likely or a third as likely to transmit as older kids, half or a third of a lot of transmission is still a lot of transmission. Also, that particular study only looked at people who are symptomatic. They did not look at asymptomatic transmission, which again can constitute quite a lot of the total amount of, of transmission that there is. There is so much that we don't yet know. I think it is possible to prioritize the younger kids to go back to school because they have higher need. But I also think that even for the younger kids, we still have to ensure that the level of community transmission is at an acceptable level. Is there any data or anything to be learned about younger children ostensibly would be less capable of adhering to social distancing? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And certainly it's true. As the parent of a toddler, I can definitely <laughs> tell you that if he went back to his preschool um, and we told him to keep his mask on at all times, that's not going to happen. We told him <laughs> to stop touching things and not put them in his mouth. That's not going to happen. I think part of the studies around young children, there was another small study that looked at the number of contacts of children versus adults. And they found that children will touch 
things as understandably and be in contact with many more people than adults do. So whatever benefit you get from young kids maybe transmitting less could be offset by the number of contacts that, that, that they have. And so I think that's why the situation is so tricky. Now, do you think about universities reopening fundamentally differently, or do you think that many of the same considerations associated with opening K through 12 are, are similar for universities? I think they're similar. I do think, of course, that there are differences. I think that virtual learning is going to be much easier for those who are older or 18 plus than for a six-year-old. I think also it's different in terms of childcare. I mean, one of the reasons that parents are, are really stressed going into this fall is they need to make childcare arrangements and don't know how, which will be obviously be different for university students. I think universities also have additional challenges of rooming um, and do you open dorms? What about kids who don't have an option of living at home? Students who also have additional issues with technology and other resources. Again, not everybody experiences the same privilege of being able to do remote learning without issue. And so I think that there are good examples of universities that are starting these programs. For example, they call it, I think, car to campus programs, where the shared spaces are all shut down, where in-person instruction is able to occur, desks spaced well apart. There are some examples like that that are starting. But, you know, again, I think testing is going to be the answer because imagine, again, if we are able to allow students back into dorms, but they're able to get tested right before they come in. I think that will make a big difference in terms of how and when we can reopen safely. Dr. Lena Wen, thank you so much. I think this was a fascinating conversation, top of mind for so many of us in the country right now. So thank you for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us today. Thanks so much. And thank you for everything that you're doing. That was Lena Wen, who's an emergency physician and public health professor at George Washington University. She previously served as Baltimore's health commissioner and is a contributing columnist for The Washington Post. Dr. Wen expressed concern about reopening in communities that do not yet have COVID-19 under control. She told us that doing so will not only compromise children's health, but also the health of staff and teachers and their families. With some states and localities having contained the infection and others that have not, Dr. Wen recommends two tracks. If a community has COVID under control, schools might reopen in person if they strictly follow the CDC guidelines. Geographies where the virus is still raging should not yet consider reopening schools and should instead be implementing stricter mitigation measures community-wide. Dr. Wen insisted that science should trump political pressure if schools are to reopen safely. When I asked Dr. Wen about what we could learn from other countries reopening, she stressed the importance of testing, citing Germany's ability to test students and teachers every four days. And while every student from primary to university is impacted by COVID-19, Dr. Wen says that we should prioritize physical reopening for younger kids because for them, virtual learning is an unrealistic option. We hope you'll join us next time for a brand new episode of Deciding Factors featuring another one of GLG's council members. You can subscribe to Deciding Factors at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us online at glg.it, on LinkedIn, and on our new Instagram, at GLG Insights. For Deciding Factors in GLG, I'm Eric Jaffe. Stay safe out there, and thanks for listening.